Today, immersed as we are in the relative comforts and mobility of the 21st century, the train is little more than another mundane form of transportation. A trusty steed, certainly, but one only good for taking us from A to B. And yet, if we took a moment to look back on the history of the faithful old train, we find that it is anything but mundane. On the contrary, the train shaped the modern world in which we live. It has allowed national and even transcontinental travel to go from being a life-threatening undertaking by sea or horse to a safe, practical, and above all, fast method of traversing great distances. It has helped the smallest of businesses grow into the richest of companies by allowing them to export goods further afield than ever before, and it has allowed the mass migration of people to new regions to pursue better lives. But most crucially, rail power has been the engine that built and toppled entire empires. Like so many an invention throughout history, it has been turned into a tool of warfare. In this episode, we're going to examine some of the roles that trains have played in military campaigns since the invention of the first steam-powered tram locomotive pulling 10-ton loads on a stretch of track in South Wales in 1804. This is a story of humble beginnings, of tragedy, terror, and eventually the Great War itself. This is the history of the War Train. Welcome to Wars of the World. The industrial powers were quick to grasp the potential of steam-powered rail transport as a way of quickly linking cities and their respective businesses. In 1830, the world's first intercity line was opened in Britain between Liverpool and Manchester, and within just nine years, the length of track in Britain swelled from 97.5 miles to just under a thousand, and this number was only set to grow. Observing these developments in Britain, European powers quickly followed suit, building their own rail networks linking their cities, followed by the first American revenue-earning railroad opening on Christmas Day in South Carolina. Journey times the world over were now slashed into pieces, as distances that it would take you or me on horseback several days to cover were now being completed in mere hours. Military planners were quick to grasp the usefulness of such speed in deploying their armies to counter any potential hostile invader, leading British author Edward A. Pratt to coin the term rail power in reference to its growing importance. Just how trains could affect the conducting of a military campaign was dramatically demonstrated in 1851, when Austria managed to move 145,000 men 48 artillery pieces, and 464 carts over 187 miles. It was an undertaking that could take up to 15 days on foot. Using trains, the Austrians achieved the same in just two. 
You can have all the cavalry, artillery guns, cannons and rifles and men you want. If your enemy is moving over seven times your speed, mobilizing their troops, getting their big guns exactly where they need to be, you've lost that fight. In a game where positioning is everything and your country and your people are the prize, the train and a well-maintained and effective rail network become your super weapon. Time and time again, through the various European wars of the period, trains proved to be invaluable tools in mobilizing an army. But across the pond, as the United States splintered into the Union and the Confederacy, they took on a more aggressive role. Trains weren't just from getting A to B anymore. They were titanic weapons in their own right. They were soon being clad in armor and fitted with firing ports for soldiers to engage enemy troops as they thundered by. Eventually, trains would even be armed with artillery pieces for bombarding enemy positions, but being fixed forward on the rail cars that carried them meant that in order to aim, the train had to stop at a point on the track where they would be facing the target. This problem would later be solved by the development of traversing gear that allowed the gun to be swung out from the rail car in order to be aimed. A maneuverable, devastating cannon on rails. Observing developments in Europe and North America, Britain began developing their own armored trains for patrolling the expanses of its empire in India and Africa. These armored trains often had carriages in front of the locomotive to spare it from destruction if the track in front was damaged, allowing it to keep mobile. These armored trains were also heavily armed, and during the Second Boer War of 1899, during one such ambush of an armored train, a young man was captured after a brutal and bloody battle, only for him to later escape back to British lines. His name was Winston Spencer Churchill. Recounting the incident later in life, Churchill wrote, Nothing looks more formidable and impressive than an armored train, but nothing is in fact more vulnerable and helpless. It was only necessary to blow up a bridge of culvert to leave the monster stranded, far from home and help, at the mercy of the enemy. The great powers of Europe sensed an approaching storm forming on the continent at the dawn of the 20th century. They just weren't certain how it was going to manifest. What they did know, however, was that their logistical efforts were going to rely extremely heavily on the rail network, which was still the primary means of transporting large numbers of men and material across land at speed. As such, governments began planning how to best use their respective rail networks and establish governing bodies that could have overall control over rail companies to make sure they acted as cohesively as possible, such as Britain's Railway Executive Committee. When the war finally did come in 1914, Britain, France, and Russia engaged in an armed mobilization that dramatically outpaced any that came before with previously unthinkable numbers of men, horses, weapons, and supplies being rushed to the front lines in record-breaking time in an effort to stop the advance outwards of the central powers, who themselves made great use of their own extremely efficient rail networks. In Britain, the first train carrying members of the initial elements of the British Expeditionary Force left Waterloo Station on the morning of Sunday, August 10th, 
bound for Southampton, where they would board their ships for the Channel Crossing. This was just the start of an extraordinary logistical effort that in just three weeks would culminate in troop trains arriving at the docks every 12 minutes over a 14 hour workday. But this speed and efficiency isn't free. The swelling of train numbers on Britain's railways put enormous strain on its infrastructure, a problem exacerbated by the loss of experienced railway men who left to join the fight in France. Around 100,000 men, approximately one in seven employees, left for the war at a time when they were needed most. And so, like in many other strategic industries, women found a place working on the railway. In 1914, there were 13,000 women employed by Britain's railway companies, primarily in domestic or secretarial related positions. By the end of the war, there were over 100,000 working all manner of jobs, including engineering and maintenance. The increase in rail traffic in Britain also presented another problem that was overcrowding in key areas such as the vital port of Dover. To help compensate, a new station, line and port for loading and unloading ships was built in Richborough, Kent, under a veil of secrecy. The so-called Secret Harbour of 1916 significantly reduced the amount of time needed to move supplies to France, and over two years, it carried more than 1.2 million tonnes of war supplies on its rails. The Secret Harbour itself was camouflaged, and all its buildings painted to match the scene behind them to make the site less conspicuous to German ships or submarines, and later, aircraft. However, with every new train added to the tracks to support the war effort, there came the greater likelihood of something going wrong. On May 22, 1915, 215 soldiers and 12 others were killed when a troop train collided with another stationary train at the Quintershill Signal Box in Dumfriesshire, Scotland. Another train then collided with the wrecked trains that were now strewn across the adjacent track. As the wrecks were consumed by fire, and with some of their friends still trapped with no hope of escape, some of those who were free are said to have shot their doomed comrades so they could die painlessly rather than engulfed in flame. To this day, it remains the single largest loss of life associated with the railways in British history. But just as trains took the men to war, one way or another, they would bring them back as well. Given the often urgent need to treat casualties of battle, numerous trains on all sides were transformed into mobile hospitals, complete with operating theatres that were adorned with tiled floors, walls and ceilings for better hygiene. In fact, it was not uncommon for incredible surgeons to carry out life-saving emergency operations mid-journey, while the carriages rocked about on hastily laid or even damaged tracks. It is estimated that around 6 million people were taken to safety by so-called ambulance trains during the course of the war, no doubt saving many lives that would have otherwise been lost. Of course, this is only half the story. The trains of World War I were by no means limited to logistical duties, as essential as they were, as the lessons of using them as actual weapons since the American Civil War and beyond were learned and then applied. The First World War would see some of the most spectacular war trains ever assembled, 
and front and centre of these were the Russian and German armoured trains. Compared to the static Western fronts, the Eastern front was at times a lot more fluid in nature, and key to this was the widespread use of the rail network. Both sides therefore employed armoured trains to protect strategic points along the track, and provide cover for the transports, as well as deliver combat troops close to the front line, where artillery would be raining down around them. As Churchill had pointed out previously, there were drawbacks to armoured trains whose tracks were vulnerable to all manner of weapons that now included air-dropped bombs, but also as Churchill had realised, they served another important purpose, boosting morale. These machines are, undeniably, magnificent. British armoured trains deployed along the southern coast of England and armed with 12-pounder guns were employed on coastal defence duties and did much to suppress the fear and anger the German Navy had instilled in the local population following the shelling of the British coastline in late 1914. Having such titanic machines of war on their side, visible and patrolling the coast, brought hope to the vulnerable British people. Inevitably, of course, trains took on a more offensive role, mounting large artillery pieces to bombard enemy positions miles from their tracks. Their speed and ability to carry some of the heaviest guns of the day meant they could redeploy much faster and with greater firepower than smaller, horse-drawn artillery. All the major powers employed railway guns of varying sizes often recycling guns originally designed for battleships, and as the war went on, there was the repeated call for bigger and better guns. Among the biggest of the era was the French 520mm Obezier D520 Model 1916, which had such a long development and construction time that it missed out firing a shot in anger. On November 11th, 1918, the guns of the Great War fell silent, and the people awoke to a new, changed world. Yet the trains of war were still running. Rather than become obsolete, they actually took on a growing level of importance, particularly in the East, where armoured trains saw use in the bitter fighting of the Russian Civil War, and then again in China, first during the Chinese Civil War, and then again when the Japanese invaded and brought their own armoured trains. Because, of course, the close of the First World War was not the end of the fight. This was just a moment of silence before the Second Great War tossed the world back into chaos, and the war trains of World War II exploded onto the battlefield with more firepower than ever seen before. Stay tuned for next week's episode, where we'll meet the behemoth Schwerer Gustav, the Nazi superweapon, and see the earth-shattering power of the war train at full force. This is Wars of the World. And there you have the history of the war train through to the Second World War. Please leave a comment down below with your own thoughts and reactions, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. Thank you for watching, and I'll see you next week with part two of War Trains.